Good morning. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. Good morning. We are resuming our study, and we're almost close to finishing our study on the end times. And when I say that, we're obviously going to be going into Revelation, but we're finishing up our general broad stroke discussion of big end times stuff. Okay, so the title of this PowerPoint is Are We Living in the End Times? And it's about left behind eschatology. So I'm a dispensationalist. If you would read the books Left Behind, that series, it does a, a decent job of giving a popular presentation of what the pre-trib rapture is, what the tribulation is, what the millennium is. And so we're talking about those basic ideas and whether or not they're true. We've already talked about the rapture. We've talked about the millennium. We've talked about the tribulation. Now we're talking about signs of the terminal generation because that's another, uh, it's not an essential belief of dispensationalism. You can be a dispensationalist and believe that, you know, Jesus could come back, you know, a long way from now. Okay. Like, I mean, it could be a while. There's nothing in dispensationalism, which says that we have to be in the final generation. However, since dispensationalists believe that Israel is such an important part of God's plan, the fact that Israel has been restored to their land and, uh, we see things in the works like the rebuilding of the temple and, um, certain end times players. When I say that like entities politically, they're lined up and we have Gog Magog, which could happen any day now. And we have the, the European union coalescing Europe becoming more united. And so all these things make dispensationalists believe that Jesus is going to come back very soon. Uh, so again, many dispensationalists wouldn't probably use everything that I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, some of them would probably even disagree with how I'm going to interpret certain verses in Matthew 24, but uh, the popular dispensationalist probably would say amen to what I'm about to say. Uh, and I think that there are compelling reasons to believe that we are in the terminal generation. But again, you don't, we don't have to be. Um, it, it could be longer. We just don't know for sure. Um, and I wouldn't say that it has to be that Jesus comes back in our generation. I'm not saying that either. I just think that it's going to happen soon. And when I say soon, I don't think that Jesus will come back, you know, hundreds of years from now. That's basically all that I'll say. You know, I can't tell you when he's coming back. I'm not a date setter. Jesus said not to do that. And so I'm not going to, but I think that we're very close. And so that's another characteristic of uh, dispensationalism is looking at the Bible and comparing it with what we see in our own time and seeing the dots connected, you know, amillennialism and postmillennialism really, they don't do that. Okay. And they actually criticize premillennialists for doing that. I'm reading a book right now by Larry Spargimino. And, um, I don't know if he's still active in this ministry, but you know, he was really big in Southwest radio church for many years. And I really like that, uh, that ministry, that radio ministry. If you never checked it out, like look up Southwest radio church, they got a wonderful podcast and uh, you can listen to all their stuff. It's archived online for years. But uh, anyways, this book, he points out how the critics of dispensationalism will all, all the time say, you know, we're date setters. And uh, you know, we keep saying that the end times are going to happen, but they haven't actually happened yet. And so today I'm going to respond to some of that and, and try to make a case that we are living in the end times. And I'll leave that up to the listener to decide um, if that's true based on your own reading of scripture, right? So, I mean, I, I'm trying to be a faithful Bible teacher. I do my research, but ultimately you got to read the Bible for yourself. But after we finish this, uh, we talk about Gog Magog. We may not get to that this week, but we'll talk about that, um, uh, at the very latest next time we meet. 
and then we'll be wrapping it up pretty soon. So I'd say maybe two weeks more of this, and then we'll jump into Revelation and starting at chapter four, which begins the future scene of the book. We're going to go verse by verse from there. And on either Wednesday or Friday, we're going to do uh, Revelation one through three, because that pertains to the church age. And there are a lot of practical lessons for us in those passages. But in uh, Matthew 24, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, we're going to start in verse number four. We talked about Matthew 24 and uh, Luke 21 and how to properly understand the differences between those two. We discussed that last time. So today we're going to focus mostly on Matthew 24, but I'll point out a couple interesting details in Luke 21 as well. So Matthew 24 verse 4 says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And so that is where we discussed last week. Jesus is saying that these are things that are going to happen uh, before 70 AD even. So there would be rumors of wars. There would be regional conflicts between the Jews and the Romans in the uh, the Jewish-Roman War that started in, I believe, 66 AD and then would culminate with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, and there would be certain holdouts after Masada held out for a little bit longer after. Uh, but that sort of thing is described in verse 6. There were people in the first century that were starting revolutionary movements. If you read the book of Acts, uh, Gamaliel mentions a couple of these. So verse five, when it talks about the Christ uh, deceiving many, there were a lot of people that were stirred up into rebellion against Rome. Um, and so no doubt there were messianic uh, claims attached to those people. Uh, so anyways, this is stuff that we've seen really all throughout the church age, right? I mean, we see still people claiming to be Christ today. There are crazoids all around. Uh, we have wars and rumors of wars, but is there something that's a little bit more definite, like it really pertains to the end times? Well, in verse 7, it says, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So sorrows there refers to birth pangs. Uh, the Jews referred to this as the uh, Hevle Mashiach, so the, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Uh, they believe that Things would get progressively worse on earth before the Messiah finally came, revealed himself, and established his kingdom. And we believe this too. The difference between us and Jews, though, is that we believe he already came the first time as that sacrificial lamb, and next time he comes, he'll be as the Lion of Judah. But there's disputes about when exactly these things take place. So it talks about nation against kingdom, uh, or sorry, nation against nation, kingdom and kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. Some people would place that in... Uh, Revelation, when it talks about the horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen, they would say that's what's being described there. And if you compare the two, it's true, obviously, that there are a lot of parallels. So no doubt all of these things that were described, the famines, pestilence, earthquakes, they're going to be worse in the tribulation than they are now. But again, the, the whole idea of birth pangs, it brings to mind uh, the fact that you have labor pains intensifying over time. So it doesn't all happen at once. And even before you have the labor pains, you have Braxton Hicks. And so you, you have the basically the body preparing for pregnancy. And I think we're seeing the world preparing for the final fulfillment of what's described in Revelation. So yes, there will be earthquakes much greater in the tribulation and pestilence and famines. But we're seeing those things rising already 
And so that really does imply that those bird pangs have already began uh, in some sense, and they will simply become more widespread and more intense whenever the rapture happens. So let's talk about some of that stuff today. So the uniqueness of these signs, many have pointed out that uh, verse number six is talking about regional wars. That's nothing you should be surprised about. I mean, people have been fighting with their neighbors since time immemorial. But verse seven introduces something different. We're talking about international conflict at this point. Uh, in fact, many people have pointed out that nation against nation, uh, the word ethnos is used there. So we're talking about ethnic groups, international conflicts. This is not something that is limited to a region like the Jewish Roman war. Okay. So this would take in all of the world. And we have to ask ourselves, have we seen anything like that happen recently in history? And the answer is very good. Thank you. So we have world war one, we have world war two, um, called world wars for a reason. So, I mean, it took in the whole globe. Nobody was really unaffected by that. Uh, everybody knew about it. I mean, yeah, there may have been some people in isolated island communities that but even like Papua New Guinea was affected. By yeah. So some saying like, I mean, there were places, uh, far flung that were touched by the war. Millions of people died, uh, something that had not been done before. Okay. Mm -hmm. The extent of this conflict. And so the uniqueness of these wars, I think is clearly seen in the 20th century with World War I and World War II. Now, earthquakes is a little bit more controversial because for a long time, dispensationalists have been pointing this out as a sign. They've been saying earthquakes are becoming more common and they're becoming more intense and they're happening in places where they usually don't happen. Right. Now, is there any support for this? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is. So. There is. Now, I, I will say this. It is true that as far as micro tremors, like small earthquakes, we have more sophisticated technology than in the yeah, past to pick sure. these things up. However... Many people who are critical of dispensationalists using this line of evidence will use that argument and they'll say, oh, it's just our sensitivity, like the instruments that we use, uh, these, uh, you know, seismo, what are they called? Seismographs. Thank you. Thank you. I was looking for the word, uh, but they become more common. They become more sensitive. That's true. But even a long, long time ago, okay, when they first invented these machines to pick up earthquakes, even the most rudimentary machines were able to register uh, earthquakes that were six and above on the Richter scale. And, yes. and so what that means is let's not get distracted by all these micro tremors. Let's look at the big ones. And so when you just isolate the data for the big ones, which even the rudimentary machines yep. many, many years ago were able to pick up all over the world. If you just take those particular types of earthquakes, we do indeed see an increase. Um, Brent Miller senior, uh, he's the guy who's behind uh, him and his son, The Coming Convergence movie. And I recommend y'all watching this because The Coming Convergence is based right on Matthew 24. And a lot of things that I say are going to be exactly what they say in the, the documentary. But they do give data and they give you graphs and they give you visuals that I'm not giving you right now that I think you would appreciate. But they were told by USGS that there is no evidence of a real significant increase in earthquakes over the years. So they went to the website, all that data is available. Pulled the data. They pulled it themselves and they isolated all of these microquakes, all these things that, you know, yes, instrument sensitivity is a factor there. They, they took all of that out of the question and just looked at the earthquakes that were uh, six or higher on the Richter scale. Mm -hmm. And they plot on a chart that there is indeed a visual increase. If you look at the graph, there is a clear increase over the years uh, in these mega quakes. That, that are that are happening worldwide and so there's no denying that the data certainly does support it yes 
Sometimes people will, you know, misquote others. Um, sometimes they will uh, use data that's dated. Okay, it's old. But if you take that data that is just the major earthquakes, um, then we do see an increase globally. And, you know, now some people are starting to come around to this. They won't deny it. And you know what they'll blame? Global warming, climate change. So it's like when even the skeptics who don't believe in the Bible are admitting that this is happening, we may disagree on the interpretation, right? But the point is they will even admit that natural disasters are increasing in our time. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio recently did this whole documentary. It was a couple years back on the flood. And it wasn't Noah's flood, mind you. It was the flood caused by the melting of ice caps. Oh, yeah. And so, but, but the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the whole point of this documentary was to convince you that natural disasters are unique in our generation. And it's like, well, we don't disagree with you. We just think that you're wrong in the way that you are interpreting this data. Um, I, I remember having a professor in college who said, sure, yeah, the ice caps are melting. He's like, there's no doubt about that. And, and, he, and, he, and he said, you know what? Those ice caps didn't used to be there. Right. He said all of this water got trapped through the ice age is a mechanism at the poles. And so there was a time where you didn't have the, the really cold temperatures required to keep the ice caps there. He says they're melting because the earth is still recovering from a worldwide flood and ice age. And I was like, wow. So he's like, yeah, don't argue with them. Sure. The, the, they're well, melting, and but the tribulation men are burned on the surface of the earth because of the heat. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and going back to, to that though, when I was a kid, um, you know, I remember taking in geography, you know, this would have been in the 80s, early 80s, where they say, oh, yeah, this is because, you know, over time, the ice caps are going to melt. Over time, these glaciers are melting, and this is where it starts. You know, 50 years ago, it was here. Now it's here. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big thing. It's like, they're melting because yeah. we're warming. Exactly. Right. exactly. And it's But it's natural. This is not exactly us causing right. this problem. I mean, yes, we do contribute to the problem, but not as much as they say. There, and is, there is some global climate change issues going on. Yes. But where is it coming from? Yes, exactly. And, and so that's the big, uh, there's no doubt that we are contributing factor, factor. but the question is, are we the main problem right. or are there other reasons to explain this change? Like it's cyclical, like these things can, yes. can be expected over years, uh, regardless of humans and what they do. So anyways, we're not getting into climate change right now. The point is we are seeing an increase in natural disasters. Even the skeptics with their climate change agenda will confess that. So from a biblical perspective, which is what this podcast is from, uh, we can say conclusively, yes, earthquakes and natural disasters in general are becoming more of a problem. Now, we talked about wars, uh, pestilence. So we do see a rise in diseases. Famine's also becoming a problem. What's really interesting, and I was reading Hal Lindsey's book on this, is that with all of our increase in technology, you would expect that we would have fixed you know, famine by now. We would have fixed world hunger. We could if um, we but what we're seeing is actually we're struggling with hunger more now yes. than they did in the past. And that's insane. Mind boggling. Even it's, Gosh. it's paradoxical. You could say, but it's certainly happening. Um, and, and, they got fake eggs. He said, yeah. Okay. But there's common things where the corruption, I mean, yes, they could feed all these people, but we need people that are in, Slaves that are essentially slaves, like yeah. economic slaves, to to do all the menial jobs. So they need those people to be pushed down so that they can still be rich. Yeah, the, I, I mean, mean you're right. I mean, I do, I do, I do. 
No, I agree. I agree that there's there's a lot of corruption, and yeah, uh, so so no doubt. But but, but because of this, and yes. So the sin in the world, yeah. um, Satan in the world, human corruption in general, um, no doubt, are a big part of the famine that we uh, are seeing worldwide. And of course, you have other things like crop failures. You have you know the locust swarms, yep. which they talked about you know last year and the year before. You know some of the most unprecedented, right. unexpected locust swarms. Overfarming the land and monoculture is, is going to come back and bite them too. Like production has fallen because the land, the, the soil is can't support it. Yeah. Yeah, all of its nutrients. Exactly. We did this once before. It's called the, the Dust Bowl. But anyways, carry so on. I would I would encourage you just to read up on this your, yourself. But the fact is, we do see an increase in famine. Uh, pestilence, I don't even really need to argue that point because, you know, we just had the COVID pandemic and the COVID pandemic was tame compared uh, to things that could happen. I mean, uh, back in the days they were talking about the AIDS epidemic and um, yeah, and that was a serious thing. But now the COVID pandemic, if anything, has convinced people that it doesn't take much to infect the entire world with something. Um, and so if it was worse than COVID and there are many diseases in the world that are, like Ebola. yeah, like Ebola. Uh, so this is just a taste of what's to come. It's going to be a lot worse in the tribulation. Uh, but again, we're seeing, you know, the birth pangs taking place. So those are some signs that are in Matthew 24 that I think that if you look at today, you can say we're in a unique place in history to see this stuff happen. Yeah. Um, so now let's move on and let's talk about something else. We're going to go forward a bit because... If you read the rest of Matthew 24, a lot of it is second half of the tribulation. A lot of it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it talks about the Jews going and preaching the gospel to the nations, the abomination of desolation of the Antichrist. Like, I'm not going to go into all that today because we'll go into that another time. But I do want you to look with me at verses number 32 through 34. And here we have the parable of the fig tree, which is very important. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that the summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now verse 34, there are a couple different views on, but I, I do want to say there's really good reason to believe that verses 32 and verses 33, they're talking about the nation of Israel being reborn. Um, there are two different gatherings of Israel to the land. If you read Isaiah 11, and I'm going to actually quote from uh, Mark Hitchcock and Thomas Ice on this. Uh, they have this book, Left Behind, A Biblical View of the End Times. Um, and what they do is they take the Left Behind series and they say there's so many critics of this series. They'll say this isn't really biblical stuff. So then they take the major points of Left Behind. And they show theologically that each of these points, though they're embellished with fiction, that they are based in God's word. So one of the things they talk about is Isaiah 11, uh, 11 through 12. And this is what it says. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the, the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, when it says the second time there, this is talking about towards the end of the tribulation, he's regathering his people back to the land before the millennium starts. But notice it says the second time he regathers the people, the second time. Now, the context of Isaiah 11 is a worldwide gathering. So there are two worldwide gatherings of the Jewish people 
back to their land. The second time, it will be a gathering in belief. So at this point, there's already been a great revival among the Jewish people when they're coming back at the end of the tribulation, because there will be many Jews still in the diaspora during the tribulation. When they come back, they will be coming back in faith, having received Jesus as their Savior. But the first time they are gathered is a gathering in unbelief, and we already are seeing this take place today, because though the Jews are coming back, they're making Aliyah, they still, as a whole, have not repented and placed their faith in Jesus um, another place that talks about this regathering is progressively described in stages, and that is in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. It's the Valley of the Dry Bones. So when they are regathered, it describes their bones being knit together, and then there's just this dead corpse with no life in it. And then it says God breathes life into this body. And so that's in uh, verse number 9 uh, of Ezekiel 37. And so clearly they're regathered first in unbelief and then God breathes life into them. And that refers to their rebirth spiritually, corporately as a nation. And so we don't see that happening yet because it won't happen until after the rapture. We've discussed this before, but we're already seeing a regathering of the nation. And the fig tree motif is found often in the Old Testament. The fig tree is often used as an analogy for the nation of Israel. I mean, Jesus... The very week that he preaches this sermon, he cursed the fig tree upon entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. So the curse of the fig tree clearly represents Israel being cursed. 70 AD, we see that in, in very graphic terms, them being carried away to the nations. Luke 21 mentions them being carried away into the nations. But here in verses 32 through 34, we see that's going to be reversed in the end times. Because he says this is a sign. When you see this, you know that summer is near. And so I do believe that Israel being brought back is a clear sign of the times. Now, there's one little bit of debate here that I'm not quite certain on myself, okay? How Lindsay made popular, not that idea. That idea that the fig tree is Israel was found in the late 1800s commentators as well. Like, they took that and they said, Israel's going to be reborn. They weren't yet, but they were already saying that they were being, uh, you could say, re-educated from the Holy Spirit yes. when it came to prophecy. And they were now reading the Bible in a new light, not amillennial, premillennial. And so Henry Alford, one of the most famous exegetes uh, of the period was like, this is clearly referring to Israel being regathered back to their land before the millennium established. And that's, you know, an amazing quote because I've heard many people say, oh yeah, that, that view that the fig tree refers to Israel. That's how Lindsay, he made that thing up. And obviously, you know, he's wrong on so many other things. But it wasn't him, okay? And we see even in early church history, uh, there are church fathers, if you want to know the exact quotes, Douglas Hamp, so you can type in Douglas's name on a website um, or on Google, and Douglas Hamp talks about the fig tree in detail, and he mentions how early church fathers believed that the fig tree here referred to Israel. And so you have early church fathers who also believed mm -hmm. that this prophecy pertained to Israel coming back to the land. So we see biblically there's good reasons for it, Early church fathers also argued for this. So this is not something that I think should shock anybody that God would use the parable in this way. Um, but there's another thing. In verse 34, when it says, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. How Lindsay, I think he probably is the first one to come up with this. I, I can't prove that. But he at the very least made popular the idea that generation here is the generation that sees Israel become a nation. So it was his contention, and I don't know if it still is, it may be. Uh, he's generally pretty careful when he says things in his books. I've read many of his books, and I'm still reading a book of his today 
um, in the middle of it, actually. And when he says things that are speculation, he does say it's speculation. Like, it doesn't have to happen this way. But anyways, uh, it was a, a belief of his that the generation that saw Israel reborn in 1948 will be the generation that sees Israel um, also repent, be revived, um, and the kingdom will come. So that would mean that the rapture is going to happen pretty soon, uh, within a generation, starting with 1948, Israel becoming a nation. Um, we're kind of there. We're kind of there. Like if we go any further historically, if we go another all gonna be dead. 10, 20 years, like we're, we're kind of pushing it. There might be somebody still around if they're living really long, but, uh, the question is, okay, is it the generation of those who saw it were alive and saw it or the generation that's born in 1948, where, where do you start counting? And, and that's why he doesn't really get into that. He doesn't make a big case. He doesn't split hairs. It's just a general argument that that generation literally refers to the generation that sees, in some sense, Israel become regathered back to their land. And that's possible. Um, however, there's another view, which to me is equally possible. And I, again, I'm not convinced one way or the other, but verse 34 when it talks about this generation, the word Ganea could be interpreted as this, this generation genetically, this people. And so many people interpret it as referring to the preservation of the nation of Israel. So though in Luke 21, it mentions they'd be scattered to all the nations, they will never cease to exist as a distinct group until all things are fulfilled. And it's going to be intense. Like if you read Matthew 24, it says there's no tribulation that's ever happened like this one. And it particularly pertains to the Jews being persecuted by the Antichrist after they come to know Jesus as their Savior. So this is going to be worse than the Holocaust, mm -hmm. the, the number of Jews who are uh, persecuted during this time. So many people believe that this is a promise by Jesus that no matter how bad things get, and they're going to get bad. It's called Jacob's trouble for a reason. Mm -hmm. This generation will not pass away until all things are fulfilled, meaning before he comes back and delivers them and gives them what he promised. That is also a very compelling interpretation. So which one is right? Hal's interpretation or the one that I just shared with you? I don't know. I will say this, that Hal Lindsey's interpretation is easily falsified. If we go another 50 years and the rapture doesn't happen, or the, then, then we know for sure that he was wrong, and, and he would confess that too. He'd say, well, I was wrong because obviously that generation has passed. So again, we, don't, we can't really be dogmatic about it. We'll just have to see. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, he's going to be going on to glory. That's right, right. And he's what 93 something like that. Yes, yes. But what's amazing is he's yeah, he does it's, it's crazy. Like sure. this guy That's how Jack Van Impey was too. Yeah, he still keeps going like he gets up in front of a church and you know, he preaches from the pulpit like he always has and so I really hope for his sake and for the sake of people like David Jeremiah and and others who have been preaching so boldly the pre-trib rapture. I pray that they'll see it. You know, I really do, because um, they've just been faithfully preaching this in the face of so much ridicule yeah. their whole lives. And yeah, Tim LaHaye didn't, yeah, and I'm sure that he's okay now, right? I mean, he he's not missing anything. He's there, uh, and, he knows. and he knows. That's right. Well, actually, would he know? Because he doesn't know when it's gonna happen. He doesn't know when it's gonna happen. Even though he's in heaven. Yeah, he knows all the joy that we will know when the rapture happens. Okay, so now we've talked about Israel's rebirth. But there's an interesting thing in Luke 21, guys, that um, some critics will use to argue against what I just shared with you, like the fig tree being about Israel 
as a timepiece prophetically, they will say Luke 21 adds a detail that undermines this whole interpretation. So in uh, Luke 21, verse number 29, it says, He spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Mm. And it goes on and gives you the same exact thing you read in Matthew 24. But that one phrase, and all the trees, they'll say, see, Jesus isn't talking about the fig tree in particular. It's just one tree that pertains to Israel. He's just using a broad analogy from agriculture. And so the fig tree he mentions, but basically Jesus is tagging on there. Any tree would do for this analogy. And they would say that what he's saying is, whenever you see the fig tree or any tree budding, blooming, then you know that summer is nigh. It's right around the corner. So when you see these things happening, like all these signs, all of them, even the tribulation signs, things that happen after the rapture, all of that is indication that the second coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom is soon. Now, there are even some pre-trib, pre-millennial people that hold that interpretation. However, to me, it seems awkward. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Mm-hmm. Now, why doesn't he just say, behold trees? Mm. Why does he say, behold the fig tree and then all the trees? Well, I think we have a clue in the text. If you look at verse 24, it says, They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So you have two groups, Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, Jews. So all the trees are Gentile powers. And the fig tree is Israel. Now, the question is, historically, if we say the fig tree budding is 1948 or sometime around then, it doesn't have to be 1948. I mean, even before that. Yeah, even, it could be. It could be. That's true because the Jerusalem was taken back by them. Okay, so it could be that. It could be earlier because even in the early 1900s, they were already making Aliyah. That's right. Okay, so we just know that sometime in the 20th century, all right, Israel's coming back to the land. It's, we're just going to say sometime in the 20th century. Okay. What happened in the 20th century as far as Gentile powers? The United Nations. Nations. Listen, 1946, okay? Only two years before Israel became a nation. And the United Nations are the ones that constituted Israel a nation. That's right. Or rather, we'd say God did, but God used the United Nations. But they were formed right after World War II, 1946. 1949, the Council of Europe, which would later on create the European Union, they were started in 1949, a year after they became a nation. 1949, another thing, big thing happened. NATO was formed, 1949. So when you look at this time period, you see the emergence of a united Europe, all the trees. So this revived Roman Empire, is it an important sign in eschatology? Jesus, he's often referring back to Daniel, if you read Matthew 24, Luke 21, he mentions the abomination of desolation. Where's that in the Bible? Daniel. Okay. It talks about it in that book. Well, in Daniel chapter two and Daniel seven, it mentions the last kingdom, which is the iron. Okay. Which will give way to the 10 toes. Okay. Which are iron mixed with clay. So iron is traditionally understood as the Roman empire, which has two legs. It's split. Okay. East and West. It was at first united, then split. And then it's going to give way to a revived expression of that same empire, except it's going to be mixed with clay. And, and I don't want to get into all that. Okay. Cause we could talk about the Nephilim because it mentions they shall mix their seed with the seed of men. And it gets kind of weird. Okay. So I'm not going to get into that, but the point is Daniel two talks about this revived Roman empire. Mm-hmm. Daniel seven describes it as a beast. Mm-hmm. 
And it mentions that this beast has 10 horns and a little horn comes up in the midst of it, which is a reference to the Antichrist. Revelation 17 cements these connections. We know this is not just stuff that's been fulfilled already in the past. Revelation 17 presents the revived Roman Empire as yet having a point or uh, a purpose in, in God's plan at some point in the future. And so the revived Roman Empire is a huge concept in biblical eschatology. So when we read the fig tree, well, we know that's Israel. Okay. But when it talks about the times of the Gentiles, that means that there will come a day when the Gentiles finally meet their end in terms of their influence worldwide. Right now we're in the times of the Gentiles. Ever since 70 AD, Israel has been cast off. The fig tree was cursed and we're starting to see that undone. Israel's becoming powerful. In fact, one of the most powerful nations in the world, whereas for the past 2000 years, they weren't very powerful at all. Persecuted, hounded and chased everywhere they went, persecuted by everybody that they lived around. Now we're seeing them become a powerful nation in the world. Right. And, And so we're seeing the rise of Israel. They're budding, they're growing. We're even seeing some fruit being produced with the Messianic movement. Spiritually, people are coming to know the Lord uh, that are, What's that? And, and literally the desert's blooming. And that's not only a type of their spiritual revival, but it's literally taking place there too. And that was prophesied. Um, I believe, what is it? Uh, is it Zechariah or maybe Joel? So excuse me, that I don't have the exact reference, but it talks about the, the increase in, in rainfall, the latter rains. Um, that's talked about also in the Old Testament. And, you know, I'll have to maybe look that up and share with you next time. That's right. Absolutely. Mark Twain. 1800, 1900, mm-hmm. Late 1800s. Uh, Mark Twain said it was an abandoned desert. Nobody lived there. Nobody would want to live there. It's just nothing. But now it's becoming, you know, once again, a paradise. It's definitely being revived just like the people are. But all the trees, they are taking their places too. Ever since the end of World War II, Europe has become united through one organization or another. NATO unites us. Uh, in America with our European, you know, allies. allies. Yes. Thank you. I was looking for the word there. Uh, so we're seeing the formation of the revived Roman empire. It has not reached its final form, right? We're not 10. We're not 10 kingdoms or 10, uh, groups united together led by the antichrist, but we're heading in that direction. And another thing that's really, really interesting about this is also Russia has taken its place and it hasn't really changed very much after world war two. NATO was created to balance Russian power in the East. So ever since then, has really anything changed? I mean, Russia became really powerful through the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union dissolved, but they still were a power, okay? And they are still a power today. And they're a threat to the West from our perspective, right? And so we have East versus West, and it's been like that ever since World War II. Mm -hmm. And then you have Israel right there smack dab in the middle of it all. Another thing about the trees all these nations that surround Israel, okay, mm. Egypt, I think they got their independence in 1952, yeah. okay, um, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan all received their independence in 1946 and 1949, yeah. uh, are all around the same exact time. Uh, same thing with Iraq. Um, and so we have all these nations that are currently at odds with Israel 
they all received their autonomy around the exact same time Israel was reborn. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at that and say, oh, it's a coincidence. No, this is exactly what the Lord said. When you see the fig tree bud and all the trees, you know that summer is nigh. And I think that all the pieces are set up and uh, Gog Magog is it's the next domino to fall. The next big domino. Um, the temple could be rebuilt any day. I think Gog Magog will probably lead to the rebuilding of the temple whenever uh, Russia is defeated by God's hand and Israel comes to their senses and realizes there must be a God of Israel because we were just spared from this. I think that they'll push for the rebuilding of the temple and then that's going to be the foundation upon which their Christian faith will be built later after the rapture. And so we're seeing all of these things come together. So Gog and Magog, I don't want to talk too much more about it right now because we're going to have a whole lesson on it. Like you can't just talk about that in a summarized way. You really got to look at some verses. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a quick summary of what we're going to look at and then we're going to stop. We're not going to go into it though. Um, Next, we're going to talk about evidence that 6,000 years of human history are upon us. And that it's possible, again, possible. This is something I'm not very contentious about. But it's possible that Jesus will come back to establish his millennial reign after 6,000 years have run their course. Mm -hmm. And since we're very, very close to that, it makes one think that we have another reason to believe that we are going, as as this generation, to see the the coming of the kingdom. Um, Gog Magog is what we'll talk about after that. And then we'll finish. We'll wrap it up. Okay, so we're almost done. One last passage, and then I promise I'm done because we've talked a lot today. But in Psalm 102, listen to these verses. Highlight them maybe. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for who? It says in verse 18, This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. And you can translate as many people have pointed out, the generation to come, it can be translated as the terminal generation. So reading it that way, this shall be written for the terminal generation and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. This strongly suggests that the people of Israel being built up back in their land and being restored as we're seeing taking place today, that that is for the terminal generation. And so the last generation before the establishment of his kingdom. And so I hope that that is the case that we're interpreting that correctly because I would love to be part of that generation. Who wouldn't? But anyways, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll pick this up next Sunday.